So Jesus, help us to know what that means. Help us to be more like you because of the power of your word. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, welcome. Good to see all of you here. I recently read a parable about a mother who made her son uh, wear a wristband that said, WWJD, what would Jesus do in order to help him make good decisions with his life? But she was shocked when a few weeks later, her son started hanging out with prostitutes and drunkards and going to parties. And, but that wasn't the worst of it. The worst of it was then one Sunday, he tore down the shelves in the church bookstore and, and turned over the cash registers and then took a whip and chased the pastor out of the building. Well, that wasn't what she wanted, so that's not what she meant. So she came up with a solution. She gave her son a new wristband that said WWPD. What would Pharisees do? (laughs) Ever since, her son has been an active condemner of sinner, a passionate advocate of religion, and he has a really good reputation with all the religious people of being a nice young man. And now his mom is super happy, and she just wishes that Jesus would take her son's good example. Kind of snarky, isn't it? That's why I like it, because it makes a good point. As Christians, Jesus empowers us to be different, but different in the right ways. In the text we read today, God calls, uh, calls us a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what you need to understand about the Hebrew word holy is it doesn't mean better than. It doesn't mean more moral than. That's not what it means. The word means different, distinct, set apart. That is, Jesus empowers us to live differently, refreshingly, in life-giving ways that maybe are different than the rest of the culture. God says to the Israelites, you will be my treasured possession. But I kind of like the way that the King James put this verse better, I think. King James translates that you will be my peculiar treasure. So we're called to be peculiar, which some of you do quite well. Maybe you don't need this sermon. We're to be different, but in the right ways, not in icky, church, churchy ways. Because... The problem with contemporary Christian subculture in America is that we are different in all the ways that don't really matter, and we are the same as the culture in all the ways that really do matter. And if our only difference as Christians is that we have Christian bumper stickers and and, and listen to Christian music, then we're missing the point. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. I do some of those things myself, except for the Christian bumper sticker, because that'd be bad marketing for the church, the way I drive. There's There's nothing wrong with those things, but if that's the only way we're different... And we're just as fearful, just as self-focused, just as broken in our marriages and our families as the rest of the culture, then A, we're not doing the world around us any good, and B, we're not having nearly as much fun as Jesus wants us to have. I told you before how in my former church there was a room where we'd meet on Sundays to pray before the services, and it was called the sacristy, which was very confusing to people, you know, they didn't know what that meant or where it was and all of that. And on Sundays it would just be stacked with food, like meats and cheeses and cookies and just this kind of potpourri of of food. So I started to call it the snackistry. And it kind of caught on, and it caught on to the point where one staff person thought that was the actual name of the room. She was shocked to find out it wasn't actually called a snackistry. Well, some people got upset about that, that we were calling it that, and, and, and they said, you know, the reason we use different words for things that nobody understands is because as Christians, we're supposed to be different than the culture. Really? I mean, there's nothing wrong with those words, but is that how we're supposed to be different, by having a special inside language that nobody understands? I mean, maybe we could have a secret handshake as well, maybe a secret milkshake to go in the snackistry, right? <laughs> Jesus' idea of being different is so much bigger than that. To have joy even in hard times, care for the poor and the oppressed, 
partner with him in the making new of all things, not by using weird words nobody understands. This is the last in a series of sermons on thriving in exile, whether that's a personal exile experience having to do with our health or our job or a relationship, or just corporately as Christians in a post-Christian culture. And we've touched on a lot of things, how to have hope in unstable situations, how Jesus strengthens us through exile experiences, how he makes us adventurous in exile, how we can be culture shapers because we are different. We don't fit in. That's what an exile is. But by living differently, maybe others will live differently and the culture will change. Good things happen in exile. So kind of as a way of summing up this series, I want to just touch on a few of the ways that Jesus empowers us to live differently, which help us thrive and help others thrive. And this is not a complete list, just a couple of things from this text. And the first way that we are different is that we know that we are irrevocably loved. The passage we read today is the beginning of the Ten Commandments, and God has just freed his people from slavery in Egypt, an exile experience. And now they're going to wander for 40 years looking for the promised land, another exile experience. But here they pause to receive the Ten Commandments. But notice what comes first. God says, you have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession, peculiar people. Notice what comes first and what comes second. God's salvation, the fact that he carried them on eagle's wings, an image of incredible love, but also amazing strength because eagles are strong, right? What that, what that, the point is, what God does for us precedes anything we do for God. God does not say, obey me so you can be loved. He says, you're loved, so now will you follow me so I can lead you to freedom. And every other religion, every other religion reverses this. Every human heart reverses this, right? In every, everywhere else, it's if you do right, talk right, act right, be right, then and only then and only as long as you do that will I love you. That's the world. Jesus reverses that. Only the God revealed in Jesus, only the God revealed in Jesus says, I love you, now follow me to freedom. And as Pastor Tim Keller points out, it's actually kind of significant that all of this happens around a mountain, Mount Sinai. Because back then, most cities were built around a mountain, and on the top of the mountain would be a temple or a pyramid, which is a man-made mountain. And the idea was you'd climb to the top to make your offering to the gods to get them to like you and not be mad at you. And the principle was I will ascend, I will make an offering, I will do, I will achieve, I will strive, and then I will be accepted, and then I will be someone. You see that in the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis, where they say, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And that is the principle of every human city, whether it's Babel or Seattle. You know, people climbing some kind of mountain, climbing the org chart, climbing up the social status ladder, trying to be more popular. If I achieve, if I get to the top of whatever mountain, then I'll be accepted by the gods of my culture, and then I can be somebody. But the organizing principle of God's city, the new society he's trying to create here and in us, is that God saves people who didn't earn it, who don't deserve it, who haven't proven themselves. And God says a society built around that mountain and that principle is going to be way different than a society built around a man-made mountain with man-made principles. I remember once getting a piece of junk mail and it had this big banner headline on it that said, Scott Dudley, you have been pre-approved. Awesome! Awesome! My own mother doesn't pre-approve me. 
but Bank of America does. How, how nice for me, right? Except they want my money. See, when you come into a city already accepted, not trying to prove yourself, you're going to be different. The human city is all about how can I use you to enhance me? But with God's people, it's how can I use what I've got to help you? And the reason I can do that is because I don't have to prove myself anymore. I've been pre-approved. It's called grace. And it's something our world knows absolutely nothing about because everything in our world works on ungrace. The opposite, right? I mean, tests come back with the wrong answers circled, not the right ones, right? In our jobs, we get performance reviews. Or think about frequent flyer miles, which came from the pit of hell, right? They don't just give those things out. No, 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 no. You got to earn those babies. And how do you earn those things? By sitting in the middle seat, hours at a time, day after day, flight after flight. And then just when you've got enough frequent flyer miles to do something interesting, what do they do? The airlines change all the rules on you, and then you got to earn even more illustrating the theological principle of the utter depravity of man. Right? Terrible things. And it's how our culture works. Earn, do, strive, approve. But the God revealed in Jesus loves us irrevocably. And I want you to dwell on that word, irrevocably. God's love and acceptance of you cannot be taken away if we're fired. Can't be taken away if we don't get the promotion. Can't be taken away if we don't get into the college that we wanted to get into. It can't be taken away because I drive a Kia instead of a Lexus, right? can't be taken away because I'm not quite sure if it's pronounced irrevocably or irrevocably. But it doesn't matter because either way, I am irrevocably, irrevocably loved. And when we experience that, not just in our head but in our heart, when I experience that, and I don't always, but when I do, I start to become different. I'm free to achieve, not to prove myself anymore, but just for the joy of doing something well without all the anxious striving. I'm free to love others because I've got this endless supply of love coming my way. I'm different, but not in icky, picky, churchy ways, in cool ways that actually matter and count. A while back, I heard a, a Baptist pastor talk about a couple who came to his church, but they, they kind of weren't the typical First Baptist type, kind of grungy looking, never been to church in their life. And they, they said to the pastor, we want to help. I mean, we don't know what you do here in church, but just give us church things to do. So the pastor said, well, what do you do for a living? And the, the guy went, well, um, I'm in sales. The pastor pushed a little bit more. It turned out he was a drug dealer. And then he asked the woman, what do you do? And she said, I'm an exotic dancer. And she said in entertainment, but it turns out she's an exotic dancer. And as soon as that all came out, the, the, the woman's face fell, and she said, oh, I guess now that you know what kind of people we are, you don't want us around anymore, do you? And the pastor knew that whatever he said next had to be good because a lot was on the line. So he said, I got an idea. How about you guys join our greeting team on Sunday mornings? And they smiled and they said, greeting's something we can do. We both have to greet in a way in our businesses, right? I mean, this is awesome. And, but then the, the woman said, oh, wait, wait. What if I'm greeting and some guy recognizes me from what I do for a living? Pastor said, oh, don't worry. I'm sure he wouldn't say a thing about it. Now, that couple went on to experience the love of Jesus in ways that changed them. They started earning a living in a healthy way rather than in a destructive way. They were changed. But notice what came first. Notice the order. The pastor did not say, you better clean up your act so you can come to Jesus. He said, here's Jesus, and his love will set you free. And in a world dominated by judgmentalism, and it's not just Christians who are judgmental. No, 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 no. Look at our political discourse in this country, right? You idiot, you moron, you jerk. And that's just my Facebook page. <laughs> in that world, we are different because we are irrevocably loved. 
by the God of all grace, and we can give it away. Second way we're different is that we are defiantly hopeful. In this text, God's leading the Israelites out of slavery to the promised land, but notice what he says. I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That's our hope. It's not in some promised land somewhere. Our hope is not in a somewhere. It's in a someone. And that's different than our culture, where hope is based on me getting somewhere or getting something. If I get the promotion, if I become more popular, that's my hope. But, but, but Christian hope is based on experiencing the presence of Jesus, who is so big, it makes our problems seem smaller. So we're not just hopeful, we are defiantly hopeful. Like that song we sang, you know, I will give praise no matter what. We can shake our fist at the devil or other gestures if you prefer and say, you may have knocked me down, devil, but you're not going to keep me down because my hope is not built on getting what I want. My hope is not built on getting something. My hope is not built on getting somewhere. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. God is my victory and he is here. That's my hope. And whatever you throw at me, devil, to try to undo me some way, someday, somehow, Jesus is just going to use it for good defiantly hopeful. Third way we're different. We are exhilaratingly free. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about, freedom. This text is where the Ten Commandments starts. This is the sequence where they're going to start. But it's given in the, the Ten Commandments are given in the context of God delivering his people from slavery. The Ten Commandments are all about getting out of bondage. And when God says, if you obey me, then you will be my treasured possession, he doesn't mean if you obey me, then I'll love you. He's already said, because he started out by saying, I love you even if you don't obey, right? What he's saying is my commands are the descriptions of how you get free of all the stuff that binds you to live that refreshingly different kind of life. And centuries later, the same God who said this to Moses became one of us in Jesus and died to pay the penalty for our sins. So now we are freed from condemnation, freed from guilt, freed from addictions through his power, free from fear, which is a huge one in our culture. Because the worst that can happen is we die and we will just be raised to new life as Jesus was. And that's so important in a culture like ours dominated by fear. Remember back when the disease du jour was swine flu? Do you know that for several weeks all over the country church attendance fell dramatically? Interesting, though, attendance at sporting events did not go down. I have no idea what that means. I don't know how to parse that. But contrast that to early Christians who, when a plague hit a city and everyone, including the doctors, would run out of the city, Christians rushed into the city to care for the sick because they weren't afraid to die because they knew they'd just be raised again. And that combo of courage and compassion made people so want to know Jesus that Christianity exploded all around the Roman world. And the reason I give you that fact over and over and over is not to be redundant, but to show us what true Christ followers, how brave they actually are. Because I can be a very fearful person, but Jesus sets us free from that fear. And we are such a culture of fear. I mean, we've seen it recently, right, with the whole Ebola thing. And the media has done their level best to gin up a real Ebola panic, haven't they? I mean, they've been trying really hard. And it's dying down a bit, but as of two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, 48% of Americans, 48% of Americans said that they were very worried that they were going to get Ebola. Almost half. Now, Ebola is causing a lot of suffering in a very small part of Africa, but here we're pretty safe, but we are such a culture of fear, we are panicked about it anyway. Just fear is in the air. 
But here is a true statistic. This is a true, not a saying, this is a true statistic. You literally have a far greater chance of being hit by lightning than by getting Ebola. Or think of it this way. More Americans have been married to Kim Kardashian than have died from Ebola. You have a better chance of being married to Kim Kardashian. That should terrify you. That's what's really scary, okay? In a culture of fear, Christians live with courage, which is why I'm so grateful for people like Lynn Pelton, a member of this congregation whose story you heard a couple weeks ago, going to Africa to care for Ebola patients just like a first-century Christian would do. And in a culture of fear, look how free she is. The rest of us are like, where's the Purell? Where's the Purell? Right, that's me. Right, ah, right, where is it? She is free, right, free from that fear. I mean, yes, she feels fear, but she's moving through it by the power of Jesus. So now she's free to have an adventure, free to make a difference rather than be bound up by all of that worry, anxiety, and fear. Irrevocably loved, defiantly hopeful, exhilaratingly free, and finally, joyfully serving. In this passage, God says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In the New Testament, the apostle Peter echoes that when he says to Christians, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare his praises, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And what priests do is basically they show who God is. And we are all a royal priesthood, the New Testament says. And so we all are called, empowered to live in a way that changes the reputation of Jesus in our culture. So that when folks look into Christian community and they, they see people loving each other who usually fight in the outside world, or they see generous people or brave people or people who use sex, money, and power in non-addictive, non-exploitive ways, and that makes Jesus look good, that's attractive and people want to do that. A couple weeks ago, I, I heard a guy from Texas talk about how one day he was talking to one of his neighbors. The neighbor manages a mobile home park. And the neighbor said, yeah, so many of my people in my park, their roofs are leaking, their foundations are cracked, and I've been bugging them to get it up to code because the city's bugging me, but they don't have the money to do it. So this man wanted to help his neighbor, so he went to his church and got a bunch of people who like to fix things. We actually have a team here called Handy Angels, does the same thing. Got these folks together, and in one day, they brought every house within a square block up to code. Well, they had such a good time doing it that they said, we should do this all the time. So they went to their city, and they said, look, we can't meet every need in the city, but we want to meet all the warm, dry, safe needs of the city. So they started an organization called BeATool.com, because everyone wants to be a tool, right? <laughs> and now they've got hundreds of people involved, and when you get done with one of your projects, you get a t-shirt that says, I am a tool. Isn't that awesome? Like, I want, to, I want that. I am a tool. That'd be awesome. They're serving. Miserably? Question mark? No. Joyfully. And they're being priests, showing who Jesus is. And when you look at that list of four things, irrevocably loved, defiantly hopeful, exhilaratingly free, joyfully serving, you may look at that and go, oh, man, I am tired just looking at that. I don't even know. I mean, I guess I'll pencil in exhilaratingly free for Tuesday afternoon, right? I mean, I, don't, I cannot... Do that stuff, Dudley. And you would be right. In this passage, when Moses tells the people all that God has told him, it says that the people all responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. Idiots. Right? They should have said, we will do everything when we feel like it, except when we don't want to. And then Moses does this interesting thing. He takes this bucket of bull's blood, and he starts splashing it all over the people, which we're not going to do here today. You may be <laughs> sad to know. But... 
But back then, that was the way you made a, a contract. The way you made a contract back then was by acting out the consequences of breaking the contract. So the bull's blood is a way of saying, if we do not obey perfectly, may our blood be shed. But they don't obey perfectly. I don't obey perfectly. But centuries later, the same God who said all of this to Moses became Jesus. And one night with his disciples who were steeped in the book of Exodus, he lifted up a cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant, the irrevocable covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. See, we deserve to have our blood shed, but he took the curse so that we could have the blessing. And now he empowers us to gradually over time become different in all the right ways, and we cannot do this without him. Lynn Pelton, going to care for Ebola patients, her journey to freedom started several years ago when she was praying one day and got one of those not from me, so got to be God thoughts, that said, I want you to be a part of what I'm doing in Sierra Leone. And Lynn has told me on several occasions that for her, this whole thing has really led to a lot of freedom for her. She said, I don't worry about the stuff that I used to worry about. She said, I used to struggle with back pain, and now I, I hardly even notice it anymore. She's having an adventure. She's in the process. She's met the president and the first lady of Sierra Leone, rap artists, and other things you don't expect from middle-aged people in Bellevue, right? And she and her husband have, have all these people from Sierra Leone who are like family to them now, and they, they love them deeply. And yes, there are very hard times. Of course, there are difficult moments. And yes, there's fear in that, but they push through the fear on God's power. And because of that, their world is bigger. Their hearts are bigger because it's more full of relationship. They're getting free from worry, free from fear, free from all the ugh on the east side. That's a Hebrew word, actually. It's just a very meaningful Hebrew word. Free from all of that stuff. So here's your homework. Pick one, just one, just one of those things on that list where you want Jesus unleashed in your life. Maybe it's more freedom Maybe it's to know his love. Maybe it's whatever it is. Just pick one of those. Write that down somewhere, maybe on your bulletin somewhere. Take it home, and between now and Christmas Day, I want you to pray about that thing and watch what Jesus does. And this is the how and the why of thriving in exile. The how is that we thrive in exile when we experience Jesus' presence, his love that sets us free. The why of our exile, the why of our exile is so that we can be a light to our culture. Peculiar people who don't quite fit in. That's what exile is. We don't quite fit, but, but that inspires others to live differently as well. And you know what? It happened before. Culture has been changed before. When first century Christians started caring for plague, plague victims, started putting folks of different races together who had hated each other for centuries, started caring for plague victims, were unafraid of death, all of that had close connection with Jesus and that attracted so many others that Christianity just exploded all over the Roman world. And then fewer people went to the gladiator games. And crucifying folks didn't seem cool anymore. It just seemed cruel. And the culture of Rome slowly changed. Because Christians lived differently. And that made all the difference in the world. So where do you feel like an exile? And where do you want to live differently? To close, I'm just going to give us a few minutes to pray. To reflect, to talk to God. I can preach a sermon about it, but only Jesus can make it happen. So I want you to close your eyes now. Picture him next to you, because he is. And just ask him to make your life different in the same way that he was different, because that will make all the difference in your life and in our world. So Jesus, we want to be different. We really do. 
But I know, we know that we cannot do it without you. There is nothing in us that can be different the way you're different. So, Lord, we bring those places in our life where we want to see change, where we want to see you unleash your power and make us like you. In this moment, we bring those things to you now. Maybe today there's some of you who have never said to Jesus, I want you to be my leader and my forgiver. If you want to pray that today, just pray that silently. Jesus, lead my life and forgive my sins. If you prayed that prayer, now you're a Christian. And just before you leave today, tell somebody, tell a pastor, tell me, tell one of our prayer ministers, one of the worship people, because when you tell someone, it makes it more real. Jesus, I cannot be who I want to be without you, and there's so many times I fail. But Lord, I know through your power, you can make me new, you can make me whole. And so Lord, we all pray. We want that in our lives. You are our redeemer. You are our sanctifier. You are the one who makes us whole. So Jesus, we ask that you would, between now and Christmas, start to change, start to shape us in ways that reflect your character and reflect your heart. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.